college-educated partner. Join them for action and drama in one of the world's most fascinating cities, The Streets of San Francisco, an exciting new police series. Special two-hour premiere, Saturday, September 16th, on ABC Television, Channel 7. you're looking for a really nice, pleasant, cool place to have dinner, one of these uh, hot summer nights here in New York, uh, take a personal recommendation. It really is that. I'd like, because I've been going there for a long time. In fact, it's one of the first restaurants I really got involved with in New York. It's just a, you know, a walking around customer. It's the Mandarin House in the village. And their address is 133 West 13th Street. Now, they're between 6th and 7th Avenues. And it's a beautiful street, by the way. It's one of the prettiest of the village streets. And the Mandarin House has an outdoor garden. And uh, they've got a pool, and uh, they've got a little stream running through it, and it's lit by Chinese lanterns. It's very, very pleasant on a, on a nice hot night. And by the way, they, uh, even if it's raining, they have it open because it has a, a transparent top that goes over it that's really worth seeing. It's the Mandarin House, 133 West 13th Street, between 6th and 7th Avenues. And you better call, though, for a reservation. Their number is Watkins 90551. Watkins 90551. That's the Mandarin House in the village. So we have a very, I might add, uh, somewhat sensitive uh, theme for tonight's uh, program. You mind? Sensitive theme. That sure is sensitive. Good God, what's happened to Aunt Minnie? Come on, Auntie. Blow that thing. <laughs> yes. Well, what we'd like to do tonight, if we may... Come on now, that's it. We would like to salute to one of the qualities that all of uh, the organic creatures of the Earth share. And that's total perversity and complete pinkishness. So would you please uh, bring it up there. We're going to salute tonight the think in all of us. Oh, 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 oh! 
Oh, oh, oh. That's what happens when you have too much wheat germ. Here, it's that coming out there. That's terrible. That's terrible. By the way, speaking of, of wheat germ, <laughs> uh, you know, that, 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 that reminds me of a, of a thing here, you know, speaking of wheat germ. Uh, I, uh, I had an aunt. Uh, I guess that uh, we all have, uh, you know, I, 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 I presume everybody has had relatives at one time or another, but uh, I had this aunt, and uh, little did I realize at the time that my aunt was a prototype of, of a great long line of, uh, of uh, American performers to come, that uh, my Aunt Claire, in fact, I still have my Aunt Claire, she's still around, probably lived to be 400 uh, with the way she lives, but uh, Aunt Clara is... Uh, well, how can I put it? Uh, uh, within each one of us, there is the person deep down in his soul, each one of us, there is one small part of us that demands constant sympathy. Uh, that is the self-pitying side, you know. Uh, oh, gee, now do you know how it is to be me? Oh, well, nobody appreciates what I do. Yeah, you know, this, this is... Part of the makeup of us. Let's face it. You know, you walk around saying, oh, "Wow!" It, it runs through almost every novel. Let's face it. That's that's all Yosarian ever did was feel sorry for Yosarian, all the way through. You remember Yosarian, didn't you? you had that blimpy number thirty-four down on Twelfth Street. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this uh, this little side of us, you know. It's the whining side. My Aunt Clara was a magnificent and is, to this day, remains one of, one of the greatest creative whiners I've ever known. Now, what does it take to be a, a uh, kvetcher? Uh, this, is a <laughs> this is, by the way, a great word, fetch. Uh, what does it mean? To fetch. Well, it's in the corner and goes, ah! All right. Ah, look what they're doing to me again. Oh, wow. Of course, uh, many a Gretcher becomes a leader of demonstrations. Uh, he, uh, he becomes uh, often uh, a second-rate politician, uh, if you can carry your Gretcher into creative areas. And so uh, Aunt Clara, my, my Aunt Clara, uh, I, oh, I, I, to this day, whenever... Have you got any relatives in your, in your, uh, in your background whenever their name is mentioned? You get a specific kind of feeling. Well, when my the name Aunt Clara is mentioned, even this, you know, here it is now. It's, it's over 1,200 years uh, since this occurred. But my Aunt Clara, whenever her name is mentioned, and, you know, I, I even mentioned it. When I mention it, I, I get the feeling of, of, of intense, almost stifling. I mean, like you're drowning in it, intense boredom because Aunt Clara was the one in our family who always, this is part of her fetch who always volunteered to quote I'll take care of the children you go out and have fun don't worry about me that's what Aunt Clara would always I, I, I can see my, you know, my, my mother, my old man and uh, my Uncle Carl see I, we had these, all these cousins see, when you gotta you gotta you know, you just have to appreciate when you live in a family, when your mother has had five sisters, and they have spawned, the way uh, people spawn, uh, they, that produces a whole crowd of cousins, all roughly the same age. Well, I was just one of a great mob of cousins, and it seemed like every couple of weeks, 
everybody, the grown-ups, were going somewhere. You know, they'd go to a big party or someplace like that. And my Aunt Clara would say, Oh, don't worry. I'll take care of the children. Well, she did. And uh, she had this way of, 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 of carrying around with her all the time this, this almost a palpable load. <laughs> you could just see it. And as a kid, I didn't understand this stuff, you know. She, she was almost a big sack of uh, self-pity. And, uh, and she would sit in the kitchen taking care of the kids, and she would uh, devise games. What do you say that all of us play hearts? Oh, play hearts. Well, <laughs> she had this idea that we like to play hearts. Did you ever play that game? Terrible game. I don't know why anybody ever plays it. But uh, we had these girl cousins, even a whole crowd of girl cousins. My cousin Arlene would instantly lock herself in the john. My uh, everybody who is you know has had a large number of cousins or and brothers and sisters knows that there's always one person out of uh, say every given fifteen or twenty that spends most of their life in the john. Uh, <laughs> is this true? <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you all this tonight. You know all these things. You've lived a life. You know what life is about. Why should I tell you, you know? But uh, nevertheless, Arlene would immediately lock herself in a john and to do whatever she does for, you know, 8, 10, 15, 22 hours, maybe sometimes three days in the john. And uh, so me and my cousin Buddy, uh, you've never heard me talk about Buddy. Me and my cousin Buddy. My, my cousin Buddy was a very shifty cousin and a real city type. I want to tell you, this this guy... This guy was like the epitome of Chicago-type kids, which is very different from a New York kid, a very different type kid. And, uh, and so here we are. Aunt Clara is taking care of the kids. Now, I don't want to start anything here tonight. I don't, want, I don't want to give anybody any rotten ideas. But I'm going to have to tell you what actually happened <laughs> when, when, uh, when kids are being taken care of. Now, the, the, the first thing I would like to say here is almost a... Uh, a disclaimer of guilt is this. I don't think at any point, any time in history, the adults of any given time knew or know or will know more than one-fifteenth of what goes on in their kids' lives. You accept this, Jerry? Okay, fine. We're in, in agreement on that. So the, uh, let's put it this way. The uh, percentage may vary, maybe between one-fifteenth to one-twelfth, <laughs> but never any more than that. It may go all the way down to one-ninety-fourth, depending on how shifty the kid is, you know, and how much you can get away with. And that, a lot of it has to do with the neighborhood. You see, if you, live, if you live in the country in a little house surrounded by nothing but fields, it's very hard for a kid to live much of a secret life, although he will manage it. This is a fact. Uh, and it will be not as satisfactory. But one of the great things about living in the city is that you can have a very rich, tremendously uh, vibrant secret life <laughs> that, that nobody, the minute you walk out of the house, there's 27 million opportunities to do 28 million things. And so uh, you can live a, a, just a fantastically rich, a totally uh, just, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole uh, human uh, a compost heap of existence all by yourself. Well, I used to look forward to these days for one reason. I mean, these days when uh, Aunt Clara would uh, 
be popped on us, you know. Uh, uh, first of all, Aunt Clara and her apartment bored me. She had one of these apartments that was always hot. There's a certain type of aunt uh, where the uh, the apartment is very hot, and there's always something going. You know, <laughs> and I don't know whatever, whatever it is, you know, to make the apartments hot, and that uh, she had this canary. And naturally, it was named Petey. All canaries are named Petey. And so this canary would go, you know, sit around and go, and she would say, oh, Petey, here, why don't you, all of your children give Petey some seeds? Well, you know, I, as a kid who owned a BB gun, uh, Petey was a natural enemy, actually. And uh, I, was not, I was not a, you know, a canary kook. Although my cousin Merle, who was a girl type, was. And so the girls all hang around, you know, and they're feeding this canary. And Buddy, who was my shifty cousin, Buddy would look over at me with the eye like, uh, how long is it going to be before we can split? Now, how old were we? We were about, I would say, between 9 and 12. That is a dangerous age. That's an age when a guy, can, you, when you make a lot of decisions, those decisions are made almost unconsciously. I think very few people are very little different, no matter what their age is now, than they were inside, very definitely already formed, by the time they're nine or ten. Do you agree with that? Think about it now. Wait a minute now. Just, I'm, I'm talking about in the ultimate way you are. Sure, you, you learn to be sharper, sneakier. You learn to buy your clothes at Barney's and get those fancy things. Uh, you learn how to order martinis. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. There's a lot of different uh, techniques you learn about life. But deep down underneath it, if you, are, if you are basically a coward at nine and you're afraid that a ball is going to hit you in the mouth anytime you go out and play and you're always afraid of guys named Al and Mike, you will be that way all of your life. You will be deeply afraid uh, that somebody's going to get up at the bar one time and say, what was that? Huh? All right. That's the last time you're going to talk like that. And bam. So this is deep, deep. <laughs> you know. Oh, yes. Uh, very early in life, I'd say about nine, male kids either make the transition from being either the victims or the aggressors. Uh, right there at that point, you are either going to be forever a victim or, uh, or ever an aggressor. You are either going to be a thumpy or a thumper. You will either be, you know, either you'll either be a victim or a bully. Which reminds me, this is W.R. New York. We have a little note here for you here. And uh, let's see, it's uh, about Le Champ, the restaurant. It says uh, that the commercial here begins, it says, announcer, to be read slowly, romantically. <laughs> Ah, there you are at an intimate table graced by candlelight. The sounds of strolling, transistorized musicians create a mellow mood as you enjoy a sumptuous dinner prepared in the continental style. And then the instruction says louder and a little faster. No, you are not in the Parisian cafe, but in the delightful Le Champ restaurant right in the heart of Manhattan on East 40th Street between the park and Madison. At Le Champ, you'll find not only authentic French dishes, but also an international cuisine of exotic meat and seafood entree, as well as hearty steaks and the prime tender beams, all at moderate prices. Then it says drop voice to intimate sound as you hit, and they underline it, 
get the address. Le Champ, 25 East 40th Street, between Park and Madison. Who's in charge here? Oh, good morning, Mr. Policeman. Here's the Red Baron of Lufthansa German Airlines is in charge. Tell him he shouldn't hog all those meters parking a 747 jet in the street. When he gets back from choosing movies for our 747 transatlantic flights, he will move the plane. I wish I could afford to fly to Europe. You can. In September and October, the Red Baron will fly you economy class round trip New York to Europe for only $261. How's that? You're getting warm. November through March, fly Lufthansa to Germany economy class round trip for only $240. There must be a hitch. No hitch? You fly any day and travel on your own. You can land in your choice of many German cities. Even land in one and fly home from another. And can stay 22 to 45 days. If you fly eastbound on Fridays and Saturdays or westbound on Saturdays and Sundays, there is a $15 extra charge each way. $261 round trip September and October. $240 round trip November through March. Okay. Uh, give me 42 dimes and I'll go down and feed your meters. Hey, uh, now through September 23rd, you tire fans, General Tire is having a great sale on original equipment tires. Now, these are the famous calibrated Jumbo 780s. The Jumbo 780 is General's wide, glass-belted polyester cord tire that comes on new 1973 cars. Now, you can get two tires for only $39.95. Size A7813 tubeless blackwall plus 178 federal excise tax per tire. They have white walls, everything available. So stop in at your local General Tire headquarters and pick up some of those glass-belted Jumbo 780 tires today. Now, that offer ends Saturday, September 23rd. That's Saturday, September 23rd. In Maplewood, see Dicker Herb at World Tire Company, 1725 Springfield Avenue. This is Barry Farber with a skull and crossbones on this announcement. If you read to get drowsy, the Book Find Club cannot help you. If you read to stay alert and make those around you proud to be around you because they get more stimulated too, then get acquainted instantaneously right this minute with the Book Find Club. I'm going to issue a telephone number in just a minute. I'll do it three times. The Book Find Club is waiting for you at the other end of that telephone line. This is a different kind of club. You've got all the regular expected club benefits, extra savings on regular hardcover publishers editions and bonus books and convenience but it's the books themselves that make the book fine club a volcano in a forest of ronson lighters hard-hitting books on politics race religion sexual liberation as an incentive to join now book fine will send you two extraordinary books for just one dollar plus postage and handling these books they're typical of the books we offer retail for about sixteen dollars here's what you get for your one dollar an american death by gerald frank the true story of the assassination of dr martin luther king jr we may not have all the answers about the assassination of president kennedy but you will have the answers about the assassination of martin luther king in this book for contrast Fields for President by W.C. Fields. This great comic springs the length of his chain and sinks his fangs into politics, babies, business, marriage. Call Oxford 71535 for a trial membership. Get an American Death and Fields for President, both for $1 plus postage and handling. Once a member, you need to buy just two more books in a year, always at discounts of up to 30% off publishers' prices plus postage and handling. Call Oxford 71535. Operators on duty right now. Oxford 71535. Or send your name and address, no money, to Book Find, Box 1, WOR, New York, 10018. That's Book Find, Box 1, WOR, New York, 10018. For immediate action, call now. Oxford 71535. 
But uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm just uh, proposing a theory here that, uh, you know, it's not so much of a theory. I mean, most psychologists agree with this, that you are pretty much, by the time you're nine, you are pretty much what you're going to be all of your life, inside. Now, you may fake it a lot later. I mean, you could, may come into the bar, you know, once in a while and sit down there with this chick and say, oh, boy, oh, listen, any of these guys around here get tough, boy, I'll tell you what I'd do. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So the, the, uh, the problem, of course, arises immediately uh, is how much control do you have over your life? I mean, how, can you actually mold yourself into a newer, better, more dynamic person? You believe that. This is an American belief, by the way. And almost exclusively in the world do Americans believe this. This is why they're constantly having problems, constantly becoming disappointed with life. <laughs> they bought every damn book they could buy. You know, how to become thin, how to become fat, how to become famous, how to become rich, you know, how to become uh, sensitive. They, they bought every kind of book. And they still remain the same old clutch. You know, there's still Clarence walking around. The other thing is now they've got a pile of old books in the corner. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a real problem with us. It really is. We, 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 I, guess, I guess that's what led the pilgrims to come over here. They, you know, when they first came over here, they really thought they could create a whole different new ball game. You know, it's gonna, uh, they were going to expunge evil. That was the beginning. You know, they, they were going to get rid of evil. Leave it all back there in Europe. Get rid of evil. But uh, nevertheless, this, this is a, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a fascinating problem. So anyway, here we are. Now, what? How are you formed? You see, you're formed. You're formed by a lot of things, and not necessarily traumatic experiences. I'm talking about secret life experiences, which don't have much to do with formal education, but have a lot to do with what you ultimately become. And so, Buddy and I are standing one day in the kitchen, and uh, Aunt Clara is now making fudge. That was one of her big dishes. How would all of you like some fudge? She also used to make some kind of candy, which she called, Would you like to have, all of you now, would you like to have Angel's Breath today? That was a candy called Angel's Breath. It contributed tremendously to the prosperity of several dentists. I mean, uh, this stuff <laughs> had, about a, had about an octane of 175, as far as sugar was concerned. This is white, gooey stuff. Well, so, so we're standing around the kitchen. And, and uh, all these cousins, about 25 cousins. Now, one of the great things about having a whole gang of cousins, you know, there were at least, well, I could tell you, my Aunt Kate had four kids. My Aunt, uh, my Aunt Min had five kids. So, all right, there's nine already. There was me and my kid brother. There, was, uh, there, were, there were about 26 cousins, literally 26 cousins, all standing around in the kitchen this day. So it's easy to split when you're in a crowd. It's one of the great things about being in a crowd. By the way, I might point out, uh, uh, if you've never thought about this, Skip, and uh, don't go away yet, one of the great things about working for a big company, Skip, is you can get away with a lot more. Right? <laughs> you work in a little company where there's just you and the other guy. Everybody knows who did it last night and why the meters burned out. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, the engineers relate to that. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, we're, we're uh, you know, me and Buddy are standing there and all these kids around. Now, I'll bet every kid listening now will look at it. Uh, you know, the thing about it is fascinating. Almost every parent believes he or she knows what their kids do. Well, what do you mean? I know. I know all about uh, Howard. Oh, yeah, sure. That's a, yeah. They, they really believe this. And, 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 and it's, it's one of the great, that's another great myth. Uh, also, uh, 
<laughs> a lot of kids, uh, on the other hand, of course, there's confusion on both sides. Uh, you know, he, he, he has a, a sensation that his mother and father never did this stuff either. You know, that the, it only it was invented when he was around. So one day, Buddy and I are standing in a kitchen. We're about ten. And we were about to start a saga that persisted for about, I'd say, about two years. We're standing in a kitchen, and uh, my Aunt Clara said to Buddy, Would you, uh, why don't you two go down and get us some uh, popcorn? We'll pop some popcorn later, and you go down and get some popcorn. Go down to, uh, go down to Oshenschlager's and pick up a pound of popcorn and bring, oh yes, uh, bring along some, uh, Bring along some butter, too. Now, I'll give you some money. Now, hurry along. Well, Buddy and I goes down the stairs. Now, they she lived right in the middle of the city. Now, it's right in the middle. Now, if it was in New York, I'll tell you where it was, if, if you know anything about Chicago. It's it's uh, North St. Louis off Irving Park. It's up on the northwest side of Chicago. It's a tremendous big residential area, but there were stores, and there were, there were all kinds of little movie houses and stuff, and, and the buses and and the streetcars and everything going all around a place. It's a big, busy area, see. In New York, it would be like, uh, like say, uh, roughly uh, West End, someplace like that, 72nd and Broadway, something like that, you know. So we go down the street, and uh, Buddy, you know, me and Buddy, and, uh, we're walking along, and we were, we're walking towards the, the, the store, see. And Buddy turns to me and says, Hey, he said, uh, why do you say we go over and uh, watch uh, watch Jake's place? I said, Jake's place? He said, yeah. He said, there's this bar down here. He says, it's right on the other side of the show. It's right down there by the grocery store. I said, what do you mean, watch it? He said, well, we'll watch the drunks come out. I said, watch drunks come out? He said, yeah, come on. So this was a... Actually, by the way, Saturday night, I have to point out that it was Saturday night because it was always on the weekend, either Saturday night or Sunday night, that uh, we were left with Aunt uh, Clara. You know, they were having a big party somewhere. So it was never in the middle of the week, never. It was always on the weekend. So, uh, you know, the bars, uh, that's when the big action goes on in the Chicago bars. So now the bars in Chicago are different, really, than they are in New York because they, they really have the mystique in Chicago of the so-called neighborhood bar. Every block, I mean, without almost without exception, at each end of the block, on both sides of the street, there are bars, and usually three or four bars in between. And and so bars are really tremendous number of bars all over the place. See, and these are these are so-called neighborhood bars where where you know neighborhood guys would come in, and each each bar had its own little crowd of guys who would come in there, you know, and, and they're selling the uh, they're selling the uh, the uh, salted. Uh, uh, you know, those little beef things and uh, all that jazz. They, wow, they had punch boards and the whole jazz. See? So this bar, this one bar that we, we began to hang around, we'd stand outside. So I go down there with Buddy. We're standing around outside. At first, I didn't know what he meant. See? And sure enough, we're not in front of this bar at a discreet distance. More than five minutes when out of the door comes this guy, staggering like he's out of his bird. Hey, what's that? And he, he walks down the sidewalk, and he keeps falling off the curb. Well, but he says, okay, come on, let's go. Well, we followed this drunk, and, and we just followed him wherever he went. 
So, so he walks down to the end of the block, and, and uh, he doesn't know he's drunk. Remember, he's really cockeyed drunk. He's going from one end of the sidewalk to the other. He's just staggering around. So obviously, they pushed him out the door. They told him they didn't want him there anymore, see? So here he is. He's walking down the street. And he, 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 he was this kind of drunk. You know, there's a certain kind of drunk that will, suddenly the horizon will tilt on him. And he, he makes a, a sudden run. <laughs> he runs across the sidewalk you know, at an angle, sort of an oblique angle. Thing. And then finally he gets his, he gets his balance, uh, sort of, and he, he hangs on to something. He holds on to it very tight, like a wastebasket or a, you know, a street light or something like that. And then he makes another lunge. He goes lunging back and forth in a Z formation, like a ship tacking. And he's going up down. So we're watching. We're having a great word. We're cackling. He gets to the corner. Now, this is a real drunk, remember when, when a drunk is really drunk, he doesn't look at, like, uh, you know, whether it's red or it's the walk light or anything like that. He just, out of the traffic. Instantly, ah, the cars are, they're going to, we're laughing to beat hell. So it is a really great scene. So he, he makes it to the traffic. But say, it was right out of a loyal and hearty thing. Cars are hitting each other. Guys are going up on the curbs, yelling, like, hey, boom, you're on the street. And so we're laughing. Well, now he's up on a curb. We're following him. So we follow him all the way down the next block. <laughs> and, and at that point, then he he, he suddenly he, he he gets he gets very still for a moment. He holds on the side of the building, and he's getting real still. He just he's not moving. But then he straightens up. He begins to move back and forth, and just just wave. He just moved like like a like a you know like a, a flagpole in the wind. See, just back and forth. He's going. Suddenly, he started to run, and he was running like his legs were made out of wet noodles. He was running down the sidewalk, and what was he running for? Well, down about three or four houses down, there was a house that had a little hedge in front of it. He's heading for the hedge. He gets to the hedge, and I want to tell you, he unloaded all over that hedge. I mean, the guy must have had seven, eight, nine, fifteen quarts of beer in him, two or three gallons of cheapo wine about uh, eight, nine pounds of pretzels. He had uh, two or three of those uh, funny little electric sandwiches that they sell in bars. Had about uh, 40 or 50 of these little uh, salted beef jerky type things. And uh, all kinds of stuff. All over the hedge. So all over it. And it was one of these hedges that clipped real nice. See, all over the hedge. Well, <laughs> he's just, wow, he's just hanging out there and he's letting it go. See, why he didn't let it go off the curb, I don't know. But he saw the hedge, so he let it go. Maybe a deep instinct. Man has a desire to get back to the jungle when he's in trouble. So he's laying it out there. Well, instantly, almost immediately, out of the house comes this guy yelling like, Man, get away from my head, you bum! Get away! And he runs down and grabs a hold of the guy. And with that, the guy turns and he lets it go all over him. Well, man, this time, me and Buddy are just flipping, you know. We just love this scene, see? Well, and anyway, that scene wound up with a wagon coming, a blue one, picking up the drunk. Uh, the guy is bugged. You know, the stuff is all over his suit, all over the yard, all over the all over the hedge. And when the when the wagon drove away, both Buddy and I applauded loudly. We then went back and stood in front of the bar again, waiting for another one. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you stand in front of a bar, at least in Chicago, I don't know how how good the business is where you are, but if you stand in front of a bar in Chicago, I would say action occurs on an average of every four to seven minutes. That, that's what we later found out. We timed it out. And, uh, yeah, you get very good at this. So we're back in front of the bar, and we're not there five minutes. When out of the door, boom, the door opens, and two guys roll out wrestling. 
<laughs> they're wrestling. They're hitting each other. One guy's got the guy's, the other guy's tie. You know, uh, his tongue is sticking out. And they're rolling around. These two tank drunks are rolling around on the floor on the street there. You know, hey, you bastard. You can't get away with it. I'll tell you my wife. And they're falling up and down. The wagon pulls up. They load them in. And by this time, there's a big crowd. And Buddy and I applaud. We're cheering, see? <laughs> well, then we took up our, our position again. And sure enough, four minutes later, out comes a lady. This time, stewed to the gill. And I want to tell you, lady drunks are even funnier in some ways than men drunks. And, uh, yeah, she, she went down the street, see? At the <laughs> it was really funny. Her shoe kept falling off. Uh, every, every time she'd go, you know, she'd go about maybe four or five feet, and she had these high heels. Well, her shoe would fall off, and then she'd try to put her shoe on. Well, now, she was kind of a dignified-looking lady. I would say, uh, you know, silver hair type. And uh, she, would, she would edge over to the side of the sidewalk, hang out to the building, and try to put her shoe on. Well, she would take maybe 15, 20 minutes. The shoe could fall. You know, she put it on backward and all that stuff. We're laughing, cheering. Well, all right, this goes on. It is now about an hour and a half, and uh, Buddy and I finally decided that we'd better go get the popcorn. So we go down, get the popcorn, we get the butter, and we go back up the stairs, and uh, there's Aunt Clara and all the kids, and they're all playing lotto, which, uh, by the way, is another totally numbing game. Have you ever played lotto? Have you ever heard of it? Oh, that's a big game among uh, ants in Chicago. They, they, they love that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit like hearts, uh, although it's played, uh, it, it, that kind of a uh, you know, numbskull game, it's, it's played with a, a card. It's a little like, uh, like bingo. You know, and you have little round pieces of, of a wood, like little uh, markers that you put on cards, and they roll dice. It's called lotto. It's a very terrible game. So they're all standing around playing lotto. So obviously, Buddy and I have not missed a damn thing which is, of course, to be expected at Aunt Clara's. So uh, we walk in, and Aunt Clara looks up, so, oh, Buddy and Jeannie are here. Well, well, let's all have popcorn. Well, we go into the kitchen, so we're all popping a corn there. She says, what did you do when you were out? You, oh, you were gone some time. I said, oh, yeah, we just uh, went down to the store, and there were a lot of people, and we waited down there, you know, we had to wait. Oh, yes, of course, they're busy on Saturday. Well, let's all popcorn now and have some fudge. Well, my Aunt Clara never suspected that me and Buddy were immersed in human degradation for the, for the, for the two hours. Well, from that time on, and I, I, I really, I, I should consider this a little more before I go on, but from that time on, Buddy and I, and of course, uh, we, we, we continued to go over to Aunt, Aunt Clara's house every other Saturday. It was always one of those scenes. But I just looked forward to it because Buddy and I instantly, as soon as we could split, would go down the stairs and go down to the bar and watch drunks. Now, we did this for a, at least two years. And I mean, we used to, sometimes we would follow a drunk for maybe 30 or 40 blocks to see where he would go. We would follow him usually to the end of the scene, you know, and, and uh, they were, uh, oh, we, we saw all kinds of fantastic incidents. I mean, if you follow a real drunk, you've got to see some action. I mean, you just have to in the, in the middle of a big city. Oh, yeah, just, just a tremendous thing. Well, 
It wasn't, oh, you know, two years we did this, and nobody to this day, as, as far as I know, nobody in the, in the family ever discovered what we did. Buddy and I, we were, we were real drunk followers. And it wasn't, until, oh, you know, like, like about five years ago, uh, I see Buddy, my cousin. See, he's still my cousin, you know. <laughs> you don't grow out of becoming, you know, he's still my cousin. So we're at this, uh, you know, official family gathering, and... Uh, and now, now Buddy is a very official-looking guy, and he wears these dark blue suits. He's got these uh, very expensive uh, handmade uh, $25 ties. Oh, he's got these elegant shirts. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's a very official-looking guy, see. And, uh, oh, yeah, Buddy, Buddy's really made it, see. You don't call him Buddy anymore. You know? As a matter of fact, he's called Charles. And so, uh, so we're, we're standing in the middle of this big family gathering. As a matter of fact, it was a, it was a, it was a family-type, you know, funeral-type scene, see. And uh, some obscure aunt had finally uh, decided to hell with it. She had enough. And uh, she left. She, you know, her, her scene is over. So we're at the funeral. And uh, so Buddy and I are standing in the middle of this big crowd. A lot of people standing around. And uh, all kinds of uh, people we didn't even know, you know, friends of her. and well, Everybody's very elegant, all dressed up in these suits. And the organs are playing and all that stuff. And the flowers. And, you know, what do you do? You know, you just stand around. And the... Uh, and I had said hello to my cousins, whom I had not seen for a long time. And uh, there's Buddy standing with me. I walk over to Buddy's scene, and uh, we had, they had these little uh, sandwiches they were serving down there. It's so kind of like a, you know, like a reception room. And that. they had little sandwiches and little little uh, glasses of uh, fruit punch and stuff. And uh, Buddy says, uh, how are you? I said, okay, Buddy, how are you? Oh, fine, fine. Very official. I said, uh, oh, good to see you, Bud. Uh, Hi, George. You've changed a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, so have you, you know. So, yeah, after all, you know, that's the way it goes. A long pregnant pause, and then Bud says, Hey, how'd you like to go out and watch some drunks? Huh? <laughs> I said, Not bad, Bud. Let's go out. So here we are. We're grown up men. Now, wait a minute. We went out. The two of us walked out on the street, and uh, we walked down the street, and he says, You know, he said, uh, You remember those, uh, you know, those watches, drunks? I said, I sure do, buddy. Said, you know, he said, the funny thing, he said, now he said, I'm grown up, you know, and he said, uh, I go to some of those bars once in a while just to go in there and look and, <laughs> and have a drink there at an old bar, see, where he used to stand around out the front and watch as a kid. Then we walk down the street. We're now five minutes. Sure enough, we pick up a drunk. And it's, it's a, you know, surprise. You don't lose your hand at that kind of stuff. You, once, once you're a skulk, once you're a sneak, you, you, you retain your... It's like learning to ride a bicycle. You never forget it. You never forget how to swim or run a typewriter. You never forget how to track drunks once you've tracked a drunk. So Buddy and I, at a discreet distance, we pretend like we're looking at a storefront, you know, and this drunk is staggering down the street. And he's going, ah, ah, he's singing. Ah, 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 ah. And it uh, goes on for about ten minutes. And sure enough, a cop comes along and it gives him a rap. And uh, throws him in the car and takes him away. But he says, you know, it's kind of good. You know, some things never change. Well, I said, that's true, bud. Some things never change. But a drunk in the days of the Roman Empire must have been just like a drunk in the days of Attila the Hun. And uh, a drunk hanging around outside the cave when they first discovered that fermented pomegranate juice knocked you on your behind. Must have been pretty much, can you imagine a drunken caveman sitting up in the corner and all the others are trying to, you know, calm him down. Will you stop it, you know, for a while? Well, some things never change. And that, so even today, 
even today, I must tell you that uh, this is a, at this point plays a distinct role in my life. That today, uh, when I come down Sixth Avenue or walk up Seventh Avenue, I, I often wonder, you know, how great it would be to have Buddy with me because he would appreciate Sixth Avenue. I mean, I, he would appreciate Third Avenue even more. Because Third Avenue has some unbelievably great drunks. Uh, other streets, no. I mean, you don't find a decent drunk on on the Fifth Avenue. Very rarely. Nah. And uh, all, any of the drunks you see on, on Park Avenue are in cabs. So, you know, that's no good. But if you want to see a good drunk in New York, you, 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 any of you like to, uh, would you like to try your hand? Well, I would tell you, uh, I've done a little work and a little research on the side, that the, that the area between... Roughly 23rd Street on 3rd Avenue up to about 50th Street is one of the best drunk-tracking virgin territories that I have ever known since, uh, you know, since the northwest side of Chicago. Of course, that, that stands alone. Stands alone. I mean, <laughs> at the, so once in a while on a, on a Saturday night when I don't have much to do, I go down and follow a few drunks, see how it's going. And I'll tell you another thing. The New York drunk doesn't quite have the, uh, well, the complete uh, abandon that the Chicago drunk has. Maybe it's because New Yorkers tend to be a little, uh, a little reserved, a little afraid of each other. But, but a New York drunk tends to be a little furtive, a little secretive. Uh, and although I did see one great one the other night, by the way, right down here at 40th and Broad, I saw a drunk, beautiful, beautiful move he made. Uh, this, uh, I, I saw this drunk coming, see. I was walking... Uh, up Broadway, and he was coming down Broadway. That is sort of coming down Broadway. It was like he was, uh, you know, the wind was blowing him, see? And uh, <laughs> actually, he wanted to go across town, but somehow he got, you know, he got in the cross grain of streets, and he's, he's, he's coming down Broadway, and it was a big, you know, a lot of traffic. It's noontime. Everybody's moving up and down, and you should see him. Fantastic. He came slanting down through the crowd, and for some reason or other, uh, one of his shoes got untied. See? <laughs> it was, yeah, and it was on sideways. And he's he's slanting through the crowd and he's bouncing off of people like a like a you know like one of these balls in a in a pinball machine. See, he kept hitting things that said tilt and they bounce off. Well, he finally staggered over and he's got a hold of one of the New York City make New York a cleaner place baskets. You know these baskets, and he's holding on to it. He's got his arms all around the top of the basket and he's just standing there just holding on and he's slanting at a roughly I'd say oh 60 degree angle he's leaning out there he looked like an A-frame and he's leaning out there and he ain't moving now this guy was wearing an elegant Brooks Brothers suit he, he was uh, you know dressed to the nines he had this Countess Mara tie at the oh you could see you know one of these a beautiful double knit shirt body shirt the whole bit he had an elegant mustache you know he's right out of gentleman's quarterly except for one thing he was leaning at a 60 degree angle and he had a hold of the, the he had a hold of the top of this waste basket, you know, this garbage can. Well, people just kept walking by, looking at him. And unfortunately, I had an appointment where I would have followed that guy to wherever what hell and gone destination he finally wound up in, because he looked like a beauty, one of the best I've seen in years. Uh, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News.
News and detail on the hour from the W.R. Newsroom. House and Senate conferees agreed tonight on a federal revenue-sharing method for state and local governments. After deciding on a complicated formula, the tentative aid figures for New York State was set at $591 million, New Jersey $163 million, Connecticut $66 million, Pennsylvania would get $273 million. These figures are the first year of a five-year plan. Most states will get close to the highest amount they would have received under the House or the Senate versions of the revenue-sharing bill. House Appropriations Committee has begun slicing work on a twice-vetoed spending bill for the Labor Department and the Health, Education, and Welfare Department. Today, the committee reduced the bill by almost a billion dollars, leaving it at $29.6 billion, which is still higher than what President Nixon wants it to be. The Senate approved the United States-Russian interim agreement to limit offensive nuclear weapons, but that Senate ratification included Democratic Senator Henry Jackson's amendment that says that if there is to be a permanent arms limitation agreement, both nations must have equal numbers of long-range offensive weapons. The White House said the President is very pleased with the Senate's approval of the arms pact. And not since World War II has the nation budgeted an amount for defense as large as $74,600,000,000. Tonight, the House approved that amount in a defense appropriations bill for the present budget year. Before sending the measure on to the Senate, the House majority rejected a proposal to cut off United States money for Indochina military operations.